What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success listeners. Uh, I've got a great guest today, Megan Racer. Um, she's somebody that came from a good family. She's a straight A student, went to Arizona State. She fell into addiction, and her story of falling into addiction is gripping. And the way she tells this story is is um, pretty riveting. And how she gets out of it is is pretty remarkable. Um, she was arrested for transporting 89 pounds of meth across the border from Mexico. It sounds like a movie. She's now using her experiences to help others. Uh, she works at River Source Treatment Center and Business Development. I've got to thank my friend Chris Stiegel because he actually sent me on LinkedIn this girl, Megan Racer, and I started reading your post, and I thought, wow, And he, he, Chris said, this would be a great person for your podcast, and um, Megan and I were able to make contact, and she's been nice enough to make time, and what I love about her story is, is that as we talk about on this podcast, Nightmare Success, you can survive your worst nightmare and use that experience to help others, and that's, that's what Megan's doing. Um, Megan, Welcome. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you. <laughs> what, a, uh, how, what a story, really. And uh, I, I've got three daughters and a wife. Is it okay to ask me how old you are? Yeah, I'm 34. Okay, you're 34. This thing, that you, the journey that you've been through is just unbelievable that mm -hmm. you've you, you packaged all that into 34 years. Can you take us back? <laughs> when you say it like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, what, what, when I, uh, I was listening to another podcast you were on and I was like, oh my God. Oh, 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 wow. And you survived and mm -hmm. you, you made it to the other side and, and you're doing great. Um, take us back a little bit to where growing up, can you give us a little bit of flavor of what it was like for you growing up as a kid and your parents and if you had siblings and kind of where you were in that world? Yeah. So growing up, um, I guess we were kind of that typical suburban family, you know, mom and dad both were married. We all lived under the same roof. Um, I had a sister seven years younger than I am. So we did not grow up very close. Um, it wasn't actually until recently um, that a life event happened that we reconnected and, you know, we're able to share similarities about us and well, seven years could is understand. Pretty, seven years is a it pretty is. big span of time there for siblings. It is. And, you know, so just growing up and being a young child, right. I was, I was always plagued with sadness. Like sadness is just what I remember feeling from a very young age, um, which turned into like depression, major depression. And I couldn't shake that feeling like nothing I did in life, no amount of like adrenaline that I was seeking from everything, you know, like wakeboarding, um, riding motorcycles, riding, just 
doing the most. Nothing really. Were you kind of that itch? Were you kind of an adrenaline junkie with wakeboarding Absolutely. and doing all those things? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I got I got an, I got a high from it, like riding motorcycles and just being crazy and competing. You know, my dad once told me he's like, "Listen, I'm not having a park sale." Like you need to calm it down. And <laughs> the answer, I mean, the answer for me was no dad, it's not happening. I enjoy this. This is like the high without knowing it. Like this is the high I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were some dangers to it. Right. But it was at the end of the day, a healthy one. Like I found healthy coping skills when I was younger. I just didn't know how to utilize them when I got to, when I became an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so the household, you know, we weren't like a, a super close family, like feelings were not communicated. Um, I do remember some love trying to be shown by my mom, but it was very challenging for her. And I, I reminded her, I believe I reminded her a lot of my dad and my dad is just internally, I'm sure he's emotional, but externally it was never shown. Um, so there weren't hugs and I love you. It wasn't until, you know, I got sober this time that my dad was like, I love you. And it was a very weird feeling and weird thing to hear. It just, it wasn't common. So Mm -hmm. for, you know, this man who's like now in his sixties to finally be like, Hey, I love you. It was like, Ooh, (laughs) I need you to ease me into that. I love you word. Um, and you know, my parents didn't really get along and I understood as a young child, like, Oh, well you guys don't get along. You shouldn't be together. I was a very rational, logical kid. Um, it was, I, I guess I wasn't super driven by emotions other than like my sadness. Um, And so it just made sense. Like we should probably not be a family unit. This isn't working. And it wasn't until I think I was finally out of the house that they decided like, we're not, we're not a good fit. Um, But yeah, I wasn't really close with my, my immediate family. I was super close with my grandmother. She, you know, she was just an amazing woman who passed no judgment upon anybody. And she was like my, I guess my soulmate in life, you know, like that person that I could completely relate to who loved me unconditionally. Like she showed me what unconditional love was regardless of like any poor choices that I made. She was always there for me to talk me through anything, you know? So when I was around 17, she had passed away and she was like my best friend. So when that happened, like I, I'm sure there's some unresolved issues that are there, right? Mm -hmm. That's a sensitive topic to touch. But once she passed away, I was seeking that, that connection again with somebody. Um, I didn't have any worth as a human, you know, I I thought I was a mistake. I couldn't really understand like I held resentment with my mom and dad because I was born, you know, I, at a young age, I was just like, I don't, I don't want to be here. Like ending my life isn't an option, but I was, I was pissed. Like, why would you, why would you bring me into this world when all I want is to not be here? Um, and I just couldn't understand why somebody would, would feel that way. And like nothing I was doing was making that feeling go away. And it wasn't until I was about 18 when I tried, um, you know, hardcore drugs for the first time where it was like, Oh, okay. Like I can cope with life. I can be me. Um, and, and still, and, and use these, these coping mechanisms, I guess, for my drugs. Like it changed my life. It changed everything. It made me comfortable in my own skin. Like I didn't want to die anymore. I could wake up and, you know, like my thing was like, I just wished when I went to bed, I would wake up. 
And it's not through any like traumas that occurred, you know, it's just, that's how I felt about life. And it was depression of not feeling worth being or what you were doing, but you were, you were also really smart in school and made straight A's. Mm -hmm. Was that a, did you get any, um, satisfaction from that, that, Hey, you know what? I get this. I get this. I'm good at this. Oh yeah. So I think like me putting my, my energy into my education was key because I couldn't find worth in my outward appearance. I couldn't find worth inward. So I'm going to find worth with my brain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and doing well in school and then getting into college and pursuing, you know, a career in criminal justice. Like I just, I felt like this is it, you know, this is my purpose. This is my worth. And so getting into drugs, right. I'm getting those feelings alleviated. Finally, Like I'm not so dysregulated with my emotions. Um, it's just numbness at this point. So going into college, you know, I'm, I'm getting high. I'm trying to work through upper levels of my bachelor's degree and it's, I'm able to maintain this, right. But I'm not getting the grades that I was getting previously. Um, I'm barely passing. And my senior year, I decided like three credits shy of my bachelor's. Okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to quit and I'm going to pursue my drug career. <laughs> wow. And- <laughs> so so <laughs> that's, that, that's a 180. So right. you had, um, Megan, up until that point at 18, you hadn't been into drugs. I mean, you were introduced mm-hmm. to them, I think, from somebody that you were going out with, and they just said, yeah. "Hey, here, here it is." Um, and you yeah. were like, "Okay." I mean, do you think? Do so, you think that? Because um, I don't know what your friends were like that you were hanging out with when you were in high school, but I think that you've talked about that a lot of different friends were using drugs, but you didn't. You just you, that wasn't your thing. But when you got with this. Yeah guy this particular person you were like okay Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean in high school um drugs were always around it just like like you said it wasn't my thing um i didn't want to get into that you know alcoholism ran in my family and i experienced some of that with my mom um and it just wasn't a road i wanted to go down and I knew like at that time I could handle my drinking. I was a very young person, but I was, I was getting into drinking, you know, more than most young people would. I just didn't see it as a problem because it wasn't really affecting my life, but drugs were a hard no. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got into this relationship, like I found my worth in this man. Cause again, I'm a very impressionable, um, just unsure young woman who is just seeking the attention from the opposite sex. And and I found somebody who was very desired within our community, right? He had all the qualities that I thought I wanted in somebody or he presented that way. And yeah, it just, it wasn't, that wasn't the truth. You know, he brought, um, I didn't know that he had like a previous addiction problem and I was pretty naive to that whole thing. Um, So one day, you know, I had just gotten off work and he got home and he, you know, puts cocaine on the table and I remember looking at it and I just got like the, the butterfly feelings, right? It wasn't like, oh no, this is happening. It was like, wow, this is going to happen. 
And, you know, he puts it down. And he's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do some Coke tonight. And nothing in my head was like, no, 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 this, this shouldn't be happening. I'm looking at it. And I just, I remember like, I could see the pile in front of me right now. I just remember looking at it and thinking like, this is not going to be enough for wow. tonight. And I had never, you know, I never used an illegal drug in my life. So that was my first immediate thought. And then right after, you know, I snorted that line, the second thought was like, I'm right. This is not going to be enough for tonight. And it was just that, that instant um, mental shift happened. The physical shift happened as soon as it entered my body, the obsession, the compulsion to do it and get it kicked in immediately. Mm. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand how people don't have that because my brain's never operated like that. But I do know that there's people out there who can look at a drug and be like, Oh, okay. Right. And they can try it and be like, you know, I tried it. Um, and then there's people that are out there that see a drug like that and it's over. Like, that's it. You know, my life, the rest of my life started at that point. Mm -hmm. The the journey that I'm on started right then. And then opiates were introduced. I remember being in the shower one night and he came home and he opened the shower door and he had half a blue pill. And this is at the time where um, like the pharmaceutical Oxycontin was around and prevalent. And he gave me half a pill and he said, here, swallow this. And you know, nothing in me was like, no, no. Everything in me was like, okay, cool. Remember that first time you got high with cocaine? Like, let's see what this is like. And I took it and I, I, I understood why I was given life at that point, or so I thought mm -hmm. it made sense. Like, this is the feeling I have been seeking my entire life. How do I make this happen every day? Did, you any, know? did so, any of it, Megan, at that time, because it was new, was there any fear to it? No, no, no fear. Mm -mm. It was a, seeking. It was, it was, it was, um, only thoughts of seeking and getting and the butterflies that came from like scoring the dope and, you know, convincing my partner, like we should go get some and it turned into this game, you know, the constant seeking, like that's what my day was surrounded through by, even if I wasn't getting high that day or didn't know if I was going to get high that day. So that's where my thoughts immediately went. And it just, it, you know, that it basically was controlling that, your thoughts in life with what you were doing. Anything yeah. you were thinking about ended up back to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't at the point where it was like, I need to get high to function, but it was like, I could get high and this would be so much better. So, you know, so, it, it's a progressive disease. Yeah. When you decided to just leave three credits short of Arizona state, what did your mom and dad think of that? Was there a conversation that was happening within your house of like, no. Megan, you're not oh, really no. doing what you were doing <laughs> before. And now you're quitting college. Was there anything that was going on in that world? So there is a disconnection with myself and my parents. As soon as, you know, as soon as I met this man, he became my world. So like everything else was left behind okay. and we didn't really, like my parents and I didn't have that close of a relationship as it was. So it wasn't like I was abandoning anything that I had had. Um, it was just, it felt normal. It's like, okay, you know, you haven't really, you contributed to my life immensely. Right. But there was never that emotional connection 
Um, so I'm okay with stepping away. Mm-hmm. And there was never a thought to like rope my parents in and let them know what, what was going on because then they would get in the way of my high. Like did, obviously did they suspe- they're going to say this. Did they suspect anything? I mean, looking um, back on it now, was that not something that like they were thinking, well, Megan's is acting different or her motivation is different or she seems this or that. Not really. Right. So after, so after I quit Arizona state, um, I found out I was pregnant with my daughter and, um, so during that pregnancy, you know, I'm still like actively using Oxycontin and I'm trying to stop. I, I don't know how to stop. I don't know about the rooms. I don't know about treatment. I don't know about support. Um, I just know I need to stop using. So by like seven months pregnant, I was, you know, free of all substances and had my daughter. So once I had her two months later, um, I picked up a heroin habit and that's when my family started noticing. I think in my head, that's when my family really started noticing because that's when they started asking questions mm-hmm. like what's going on. Um, after you, my daughter, you know, I was going to ask yeah. you what in that time period when your daughter's born, um, are you, what kind of, are you working? Uh, are you like, are you living with your parents? Are you like, what's going on in the, that world? Yeah. So living wise, um, so their dad, so I, at this point I had already moved on to like my third, you know, abusive relationship and that's with my children's father. Yeah. And, um, so right before I found out I was pregnant with our daughter, you know, we both, decided like we're just not good for each other um we brought out really really bad sides you know i met i met their dad and i was like cool you can supply me with drugs Mm -hmm. and i'm sure i gave him whatever he needed um and our relationship was just based off of drugs Mm -hmm. you know and and then we get pregnant with our daughter um so during like towards the end of the pregnancy i'm trying i'm living with him and his dad at his dad's apartment and you know I didn't know at the time, but um, my children's father had switched from Oxycontin to heroin. And I didn't understand, like, I didn't understand the difference. I knew, like, I never wanted to try heroin because I knew how I was on Oxys. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be a monster on heroin. It would be over. And so I, I found out that he was using and he was high during my pregnancy. And, you know, when I had our daughter, he was, like, nodding off and, and it was just very frustrating for me not understanding that world. So um, right after I had our daughter, I moved out and I moved in with my cousin, which, you know, instead of like going to my mom and being like, hey, I need help. I'm trying. I'm just floating above water barely. Yeah, struggling. So struggling. Um, I wasn't ready for a kid. Like I didn't, you know, I was working in restaurants um, up until the basically day I had my daughter. So. I was used to just doing what I had to do to make do in life. And um, so I have my daughter and I'm living with my cousin and, you know, her dad comes back around a couple months later and he's still getting high on heroin. And I remember I, I found it and cause he was sleeping and I go outside cause I knew he was getting high and I go outside and I find it in his truck and I bring it upstairs and I said, I found your stuff again. And he was like, listen, listen, like, just give me half. You can like keep the other half, throw it away. I don't care. Just, I need that other half. Like I, I need to be well. And I'm not really understanding the well part because it wasn't, 
I didn't experience that withdrawal on oxys. So I, I give them half of it and I let them know, okay, well, I'm going to do the other half while you're gone. And he was like, okay, cool. Like I'll, I'll pick up more tonight. And so, you know, but you I had never used it baby. before, had you? No. no. Was that a big jump Not for you just to it, say, it was, I'm going to, like, what was your thought process on that? I'm going to use the I guess half. like my, my thought process was one, I want to get high because it's been a really long time since I've been able to get high. Two, um, I want to show you, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm destroying my life to, to prove a point. I don't, I don't know what point that was, but it's mm-hmm. like, F you, I'm going to do this too then. And yeah, I just, I wanted to experience what heroin was like. It was right in front of me. All the other times I had, I had found it on him, I threw it away. You know, and it was that last time where I, I succumbed to it, you know, and it, it didn't stop for a good year and a half after that. Um, wow. We hadn't moved to the needle or I hadn't moved to the needle at this point um, during that process. You know, CPS is called. We both have a case going. Um, he had like moved away at that point to Missouri. So he comes back during the CPS case. Uh, we're clean for about six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Child protective services. Um, cause we both tested dirty, right. Tested positive for heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm about six months sober. He's still, you know, he's still drinking and manipulating the system, um, using oxys, but like as a prescribed medication and we, you know, we see so sad. <laughs> so there's like a, a drug testing we had to do, right. And there was a night where we both got called to go in and we see each other and we're looking healthy. You know, we go out to like dinner that night, just like a quick dinner and we're just chatting and like, wow, you know, we're doing so great. And so we end up, you know, hooking up and, and I get pregnant with our son. Oh God, baby. Wow. Okay. My children are amazing blessings. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right looking good and so i find out you know i'm pregnant i have a cps case going on i end up hiding my pregnancy the entire time i mean the case went on until i the case closed a week after i had my son and the caseworker that i had had no idea i was pregnant um i was megan how did how did they get brought into the world of yours how did child protective services even um, get to there to you so his so my children's father his dad called cps okay okay and let him know that i was getting high and so when that happened you know they they notified both parents and i tested positive and sean was out in missouri he tested positive for heroin as well okay so All right. that makes sense you know yeah, he comes he comes back to Arizona after that and I let him know I think in at the end of January of twenty fifteen. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm pregnant. <laughs> like definitely yours. Um, he didn't believe me that it was his, but he just let me know that he wanted nothing to do with, you know, the child I was carrying and that he didn't really want anything to do with me. Um, and then I think four months, five months into it, um, on Cinco de Mayo in 2015, he tried to kill himself and 
so after that, you know, things with CPS changed drastically. Um, and dad again moved to Missouri and I had, I didn't hear from him for a good year and a half. Um, so the CPS case closed, you know, I stayed sober. I, I got the housing. I had a, a good job working for Maricopa County Superior Court because at that time I, I didn't have any felonies. Um, I had a decent working background and like education. So Megan, you're working at my, the court. You're, you're, you're yeah. like what, a, like a court reporter or what, what, what do you, um, what do you so do? I worked for Maricopa County, the clerk of court. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I basically, I was at the filing counter. So any, you know, criminal yeah. paperwork that need to be filed, probate, civil, family, um, we did, what else did we do? We did all kinds of stuff. Like I mean, marriage. It seems like a good job that you ta- right, was, tackled there. Yeah. Yeah. It got me into the field that I was very interested in. I was very interested. You know, I went to, I did criminal justice so I can, um, go to law school right mm-hmm. and i was studying for my lsat my senior year and it just became all too much right you have like that crippling anxiety the depression the drug use um the constant school work that was that was happening on top of like trying to study for the lsats and like i just wasn't in a good mental space yeah to handle any, any of it but when you were at this um, job and doing this work you were high? Not in the beginning. Okay. <clears throat> so it wasn't until so I was about two, I was two years, three months sober when okay. I relapsed. Um, so again, dad comes back into the picture. Um, I think our son is about almost a year old at that point. Um, my goal was to get him back into the picture. Um, our daughter knew who he was. You know, she loved him and they had an amazing bond and I wanted him to know his son. How old would so, she, how old would your daughter have been at that point? Like, was she, I guess, old enough to know and have a relationship. Oh yeah. I think she was around probably three, three and a half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause my kids are about three years apart. So, you know, he, he decides to come back around. We, I filed a, a petition for family court. To establish custody um, with our daughter, I did because like once CPS is out of your life, they recommend that you file for custody in um, adult, like family court. Okay. I didn't add our son on there. Um, he made it very clear to me he wanted nothing to do with our son, so I didn't put him on the birth certificate. I gave my son my last name. Um, you know, dad just wasn't around, and he came back out to Arizona. Yeah, Max was almost a year old. And, you know, for the first couple of months, it was okay. Like, he lived on my couch. Sometimes there would be, like, intimate moments, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a relationship. Like, we're partners together. Um, And, you know, we, I ended up relapsing on alcohol with him. And it was just, it was that gateway I needed. You know, it was the excuse I needed of, like, I threw my my sober date away. Like, let's let's do this. And Mm -hmm. he was the one that always brought it into the relationship so I remember like you were kind of like using Oxycontin once in a while and I had just gotten home from working my job at the Maricopa County Superior Court I get home and you know he's watching the kids and he tells me to come into my bathroom in the back and I'm like okay what's up 
And he's like, I got something. And so I'm thinking like, oh, Oxy, okay, cool. And then he opens up the medicine cabinet and, you know, he pulls out, he pulls out the heroin, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I would love to say like something in me was like, no, don't do that. But everything I know to be true about my internal self said, yes, you need to do that. Um, so, you know, I started, I started getting high and then like a couple weeks later, um, he shot me up for the first time mm. and it was, it was over. You know, I was, my life again turned to seeking drugs first, everything comes second. And your mom at like, the time, which, right. which, which I would right. take, with two kids. Yeah. With two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to maintain, um, a lifestyle, not one that I would consider okay being sober, but I'm able to like keep a roof over my kid's head, you know, make sure they have food, all of that. Like once, but that didn't come first, right? Like the, my seeking drugs came first and then like I would make sure there's enough left over for the rest of it. Um, how did so, that affect when you started diving into this? How did that affect your world at work? Uh, I, you know, I would, I was constantly showing up, I mean, not constantly showing up late. I mean, there were times I would be late, but like I, you know, I would get the kids where they needed to go. Right. And most of the time I was like coming off the heroin, withdrawing pretty hard. And I would go to my, my job and clock in. Generally I was on time. Um, I'd clock in and I'd start, I'd withdraw from heroin. I'd be at the filing counter trying to like maintain my composure and then on my lunch break I would like you know drive however far I needed to drive on my hour break get what I needed shoot up and then come back to the office and I mean it just it was it was like this constantly and um and then you know I got a promotion during this time so I get promoted to right courtroom clerk at a different facility um, this was at the time my lease was up. Um, my children's father was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm done. So he does what he does and goes back to Missouri. And so I moved back in with my mom. I just got this promotion. So I'm starting, I work at the juvenile courts now as a courtroom clerk um, for like the different judges that are there, commissioners. And this is when things get really bad. You know, my habit turns into like, I made it a habit to where I would pick up a gram of heroin a day on top of like whatever meth I needed. And like, you know, I used to drink fireball. So like a big handle of fireball. Wow. And, and so I would, I would live one of my dealers do a handle of fireball a day, a day. Wow. Megan. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, it's bad when your dealer is like, Megan, he's like, Megan, you meet, you meet me every day. And, it, you know, from where I worked, it was a good 45 minute drive. So it's like, why don't you just buy in bulk? Like, what are you doing? And it was like, no, I can't do that. Because if I, if I buy two grams of heroin today, I'm doing it. There's no stop button yeah, on this ride. Yourself, right. There's none. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that, that, that time in my life was pretty chaotic. I'm sure they were like, who hired this chick and why did <laughs> well, they, they hire you, her? I mean, you must've been doing a good <laughs> job because they gave you a promotion in between all that too. 
I mean, I, you've had I'm this, you've, you've been smart, you know, without all this other stuff around you, you functioned as a smart person that was able to get a job, a good job. They promoted you, but you were still struggling so much with everything and the time management and having to go out and come back and out and come back all the while while the day right. was going on. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't, you know, I was, I was mom as well. So I'm trying to pick my, drop my kids off at daycare. I need to figure out what I need to shoot up before that happens. Um, I need to go get my drug that day, make sure I'm not late. I need to be able to shoot up while I'm, you know, either at the place I did it from or like when I'm at work. And so it turns into like me bringing all my stuff into my job. You know, I, I had no cares in the world. I had a full cup of fireball on ice. I had, you know, everything set up that I needed for my shot and it was all with me and I, I would do it in the bathroom at work. And one time, you know, I, I was super tired. I took two downers, right? Alcohol and heroin. And I go out for my like 15 minute break in the parking lot and I end up passing out my, my boss and her boss come and they knock on my window. Right. And I wake up and I, I was gone for about an hour. I had no idea. And they were like, you need to follow us. <laughs> so I go into the office and they were what's going on and you know I lied through my teeth and I'm like listen I'm super depressed these are all the things I have going on right I used I used all the negative to my advantage like my children's father isn't around um I'm super depressed which I was Mm -hmm. but like I used that as like the excuse of what was going on and they were like well we suggest you take some time off and you know I took time off and like filed for FMLA and and that was, again, another excuse for me to use when I got back to work of, like, why I couldn't come into work that day. Because the FMLA um, granted me leniency. So, I don't know, maybe three or four months in, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was exhausted. Um, and so I, <clears throat> I didn't let them know I quit. I just stopped showing up. I cashed my 401k out and... And use that to to buy more drugs. So did <laughs> you, you know? think on the because it was a good job you had, but you that wasn't really any type of focus of yours anyway. So it was was it easier just to walk mm-hmm. away because it was almost like too much mm-hmm. pressure. I'm having yeah. to show up to this place. I'm having to hide things. I'm I'm, I'm under a lot of stress. It was giving you more stress, so it was easier just to walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you walk away oh, yeah. from it, what happens then? Um, so, I mean, I had enough cash to float for a little bit, but I have a really bad drug habit. So um, at one point, I'm like, I leave my mom's house and I go and I live with my one of my female dealers, right? Of course, I have my kids with me everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't leave my side in my active addiction. And, you know, an opportunity presents itself from members in Mexico um, to do some work with them, you know. Um, and it was like my car had just gotten reboed because uh, I put out like a, a title loan on that that I couldn't obviously pay for. 
And so, you know, they just painted this picture for me that I needed to see as a way out. And so, you know, I was getting back into, because I had engaged in my selling my body previously. And so I was getting back into that. And it was a way that I didn't have to, to start doing that again. Um, did any of that, it, it, like rationalizing that out, did any of that scare you that you were stepping into that world? Or was that just, no, I'm in this to yeah. get to the next step. I'm in this because I'm mm-hmm. addicted. And it, you just rationalize everything out. Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff doesn't scare me. But if you're going into, I don't know. if you're going into Mexico and you're going to be dealing with drug people, did that, cause I mean, you see this stuff on the movies and stuff. These people, you know, they appear to be friendly and then they go and, you know, shoot somebody in the back and, you know, you don't see them again. You know, the, did, did any of that adrenaline fear, whatever that is, even though that you were in, uh, in the drug haze, were you thinking, you know what, this could be really, really dangerous and I could not come, maybe come back from this? No. No. You were that never, far down the road. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just didn't think like that. Um, no. No. So then mm-hmm. you, you take this opportunity to go. I do. I, I get down to Mexico and of course, again, I have both my children with me. Um, there's no way I'm asking my mom for help, you know, which would have been the smart thing to do. It would have been the most rational thing to do. But yeah. again, I don't, I have that fear of just an ingrained fear of disappointment. I don't, I don't want her to know how bad I am and <clears throat> I don't want to lose my kids again. Um, so it's very selfish. It was a very selfish, selfish state that I was in. Um, you know, there was never anything discussed about what would happen when I got down there. It was more of like, let's introduce, like, let's make an introduction. We'll get you a vehicle and then you can go home and we'll go from there. Um, so I had, I'd been down there for, I think, a week and a half. And, you know, I, I felt stuck. Um, I didn't feel like I could go anywhere and I have my two kids. So like, I'm, you know, they're never leaving my side, but I'm putting them in the most dangerous possible situation that you can. How old do you think they were Um, when when you were down there in Mexico? Probably about two and a half, like five and a half, maybe. Yeah. So the five and a half year old would probably have some. She remembers stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. She remembers my two year old. No. Yeah. No, so my six year old now. No. Yeah. Um, so did they, explain, know, they finally, did they explain to you, Megan, Hey, this is what we're going to do. You were going to put you in a situation and we're going to have you drive across the border. And I mean, how did that work? Like what, what, how did, right. how do you have that meeting? So the conversation is, you know, we, we have this truck for you, go register it. So they take me to go back over to the United States, register the truck in my name, and then come back um, and just kind of see what that looks like. And then, um, you know, part of their protocol, I don't know, was basically like, we need you to make a couple of runs across the border just to see if they send you to secondary. And so I did that a couple of times, like went, you know, to Walmart or like Jack in the Box, whatever, and would come back. Well, the last 
So I think the last time I did it, they had sent me over to secondary. Secondary where, like, drug means they take a look at you, a, a deeper yeah. look into what what you are and the truck is and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I get back, I let them know, like, hey, um, just so you know, they, they sent me over to secondary, like, why don't, like, when I get back to, you know, where I live, like, let me get my car and <clears throat> then we can, like, proceed forward with, like, running drugs. Um, cause they popped me for secondary. This is a bad idea. And they were like, yeah, okay. Okay. Um, you know, the truck really wasn't running well. Like it kept, um, like revving up and then it almost was like dying. So like, the day before I left, which I didn't know when I was going to leave, they did, but I didn't. Um, the day before I left that I, they had known that the truck wasn't running well and they're like, okay, we have time. We're going to take it into the shop and then we'll drop it back off to you. So they did that. And then, you know, supposedly the next day, I think in the morning it didn't work out, but you know, they came like gave me some cash, like at gas, get a new phone that I would be calling like a certain phone number on. Um, once I got over the border and they're like, so kind of explaining the job they wanted me to do because I explained to them, you know, about secondary and like, you know, they definitely have their eye on me if I cross the border again. And they're like, okay, well, we just need you to, um, you know, once you cross, like go pick up your new phone. Um, you're going to give us a call. We're going to give you a number and then you're going to go out to California. You're going to pick up some money for us and come back. Like, okay, <clears throat> I can do that. Um, so that night I had, I was leaving and, you know, things just, I'm looking back, things were a little weird. Like they were tracking the car that I was in, which I didn't understand that they were. And so like, I look back and I know they were tracking me. Um, so like there's, you know, I, I go across the border and of course they send me to secondary. So I thought it was just going to kind of be like the first situation where I went to secondary, where they would just examine what they needed to. And I would be off. And I'd be able to do, you know, I'd get the money I needed and life would be great, right? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, that's not what happened. Um, you go inside the building and I noticed all, all the Border Patrol surrounding the truck. And I see all of them look at me and I was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. What's going on? And so, you know, they take the kids and they call my mom, let her know what's going on. She drives all the way from Phoenix to Yuma, just like a four and a half hour drive to get the kids and drive back. Um, they put me in a cell, like handcuffed me, put me in a cell. They like patted me down right. <clears throat> and they didn't find the drugs that I had on me. So I'm like in my cell and I just like, I do everything that I have. I was like, all right, like before they find it and I don't really care what happens at this point, you know, life seems to be pretty awful in this moment. Like I'm just trying to scramble in my brain, like what's going on? Like don't understand. It's not making sense to me. Um, so I passed out, I don't know, for a couple of hours and then they pull me from my cell. Um, <clears throat> like Homeland security and, you know, two guys and they, they start interrogating me and they're just like, you need to tell us what the, what your day looked like today. And I kind of go over my day and they're like, well, you're not telling us the truth. And, and they explained to me how much mess is in my truck. 
And I don't really, I don't remember much of what happened after that during the interrogation, you know? So you really, you didn't even know what you were transporting. You just knew that you were going from point A to point B. And I guess they told you how much you were going to get paid um, from this transaction. Right. Right. I mean, so my understanding was that I was just going to go to Cali to pick up some, some money for them as my first task to see, you know, if I'm able to work with them and then eventually we would move to drug running. I didn't know they had put that you were already doing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah. And so I know that's like, it's very challenging for me to like talk about this. I would love to say that I knew that there were 89 pounds of methamphetamine in my truck. Cause I wouldn't look like such an idiot, but I didn't. And it's like, I don't know. I just try not to think about it too much. I don't talk about that part of my story a lot. It's, I feel a lot of shame over it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, um, I don't know about shame. I think you were in a situation to where you were <laughs> desperate and right. you were doing desperate. desperate. You were doing desperate things and you probably didn't ask a lot of questions and no. it was probably all hazy and you were using. And so it was just, you know, things make more sense if you can make them make sense in that haze. And that's, you know, right. I think people, you know, people can get into it. whether you're drinking or taking drugs or whatever, you can make some decisions that are not the decisions you'd make when you were sober. Right. Not at all. <laughs> So, so, I mean, they tell me, yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, so then the next thing that you know is, is, okay, I'm in trouble. I mean, this is bad. Um, these are real people from real places in our system that are asking me big questions. Did you feel like um, it was as big as it was? Or did you think, well, I'll probably answer these questions and they'll let me out of here and everything will be okay? I know understanding of how big it was. Um, I'm still in the delusion that this isn't happening. I'm still in the delusion that like, this isn't what I thought was going to happen. You know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how much was in my truck and what was in the truck. And, you know, how could I not have like seen that that was what was happening? Like I, I was, I was living in some, alternate universe at that point in time and um so they like end with their questioning and they transport me over to like the UN detention center and I remember I just I passed out for like a day mm. in like isolation there and they wake me up to go to my hearing and my like initial hearing and I was like okay you know they'll let me out like this is just a huge misunderstanding you know this can't be the reality of what I'm I'm facing right now and you know at this point I'm like withdrawing from heroin pretty bad and I'm like boxed and shackled and they send you over you know to like the the cell where you wait to go in front of the judge and I just you know they like release one of your hands I think the left hand because that's like that was my left dominant hand, right? So you're still like shackled up, one hand's out, and I'm in active withdrawal, like good almost 48 hours into it, you know? So I'm feeling awful. I go in front of the judge or I talk to my attorney, and he's like going over all these numbers, right? And like the, 
the <clears throat> determining factors of like how much time you get in prison. I'm just like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what did you say? <laughs> right. You know, he's like, it's okay. You know, like if we plead to this, you can, and I'm like pleading to what, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? He's like, well, you're not taking this to trial. Like you're going to lose and you're going to get 20 years in prison. What are you, what are you talking about? And mm-hmm. It was just like soaking in little by little. And then when I went in front of the judge, you know, I had it in my mind that he'll let me out. And he was just like, you know, we'll stay there and then we'll transport her to Florence, like closer to where I live. And so I'm still just under this delusion that everything's going to be okay and that it's not really happening. And everything wasn't okay. It wasn't. Um, spent like seven days in isolation, detoxing, which was interesting Mm. very interesting um they transported transported me to florence and so you know we're boxed and shackled for four and a half hours and i've got myself and two other females that are right next to me on like a seat that's meant for one person so so, like we're literally on top of you like sitting on each other's legs i'm shackled and i'm like withdrawing some heroin and then I just hear like all the guys in the back, you know, they, they understand what's going on and they can tell I'm not doing well. Oh, well, right. <clears throat> No. And I've got this other guy that's like next to me and the other side, who's like trying to marry me. <laughs> what's going on? What world have I stepped into? Another universe, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Now, have you so already been, did you, had you already been sentenced at that point? No, okay. this was the initial, this before pre-trial even, gotcha. well, I guess technically on pre-trial, I had been indicted at that point Okay. with distribution and um, transportation. transportation yeah. So um, I get sent over to Florence in Arizona and <clears throat> that's where um, I guess like the real journey begins that I, I fully remember. Yeah. I had a lot more clarity at that point. Um when you're, you know, when you have an option, right, if you are a drug alcohol user to go to, to treatment while on pretrial. So um, I remember going in for that interview for Crossroads where I went to treatment and just bawling like a baby, you know, because I had already experienced recovery at this point. I knew what it felt like and I, I just, I knew that that's what I wanted again. Like I had a good two weeks of mental clarity. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really see the wrongs that I had done, right? It was all done to me. But I knew I didn't want to die anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was I was finally willing to live. And probably and like out, to live Megan. You, oh I, absolutely. Yeah. Had to have been worn out. It was out. exhausting. Exhausting, yeah. 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 I um you know, I, I interviewed for that and they said, you know, we'd love to have you come to our program. Um, had to wait a couple more weeks before I could get out um, for a bed to be available. <clears throat> so, you know, you do the whole um, waiting in the cell for them to then take you to the court building and then they take, you know, the whole thing, the whole processing out takes about a day. And then I, I remember going to Crossroads and, and getting to wear like, you know, normal civilian clothes and kind of feeling like, like myself again. But um, yeah, that's where the real 
real journey of the rest of my life started was that crossroads. I was there for four months and, you know, you're basically confined to that one building. I'm, I was basically a contract with the Fed, so I couldn't go anywhere. And I had a lot of people overseeing me and my pre-trial officer was, oh, she's really hard on me. Mm-hmm. But for good reason, you know, I, I believe the people <clears throat> that came into my life came into my life for a reason. <clears throat> like I needed, I needed somebody with some harsh reality for me because I was very self-centered yeah. and um, tough love. Yeah. 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 You know, at, at the end of it, she, she and I got along very well, but in the beginning, you know, there was a point in time while I was in treatment where I get a call from her and, you know, like the director's sitting there and she was like, do you want me to, do you want me to pull you out of that program and just bring you back to detention? Cause that's what your actions are telling me. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a lot of harsh reality where it was like, wow, you know, this is real. Like I have people who are watching my every move who are determining the rest of my life for me. How did your mom and, and dad so, and, and kids and oh, everything, how that all fit into this equation that was happening right then? Right. So my mom, she got my kid. Um, dad's not in the picture still. And so she files for guardianship in the juvenile court. And so just a crazy correlation that happens there. Um, one of the commissioners that saw that case for the dependent, or not dependency, but the guardianship, um, this is one of the commissioners I worked with. Wow. Small world. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she's like the commissioner, Alan, reading off the the petition. And, you know, he looks at my mom and he's just like, oh, Miss Racer, I'm so sorry. Like, I know your daughter, you know. And so that was that was a humbling experience. It, you know, I'm sure everybody knew at that point what was going on. Um, the signs were all there. So. My mom has my kids and, you know, my son, he's not doing very well. Like he's always just been attached to me. Um, he is, he was recently diagnosed with autism. So there was a lot of behavioral stuff going on. And, um, you know, when I had my son, I, I was sober when I had him. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like, man, I did, I know he's like, he's, he's super special. Right. And, and, he has like really special abilities, but it was like, I did everything I was supposed to do correctly with this, this child. And, you know, so it was, it was a lot of, I don't know, a lot of processing with my son throughout these years, but, um, so behaviorally he wasn't doing well. He kept getting kicked out of daycare. Uh, they finally found one that stuck, you know, my daughter, she's, dealing with abandonment issues I'm sure from when I had the CPS case and now mom's gone again um dad's always gone so she's got her stuff that she's dealing with she's a very resilient young little girl like just a resilient little girl and you know mature in some areas but currently I'm I'm so blessed that you know she has so much innocence so Mm. I didn't I didn't steal that from her you know what I mean? And that's like, it's incredible how resilient kids are, you know, the, and is that love, you know, as long as there's love there and they can feel that. And, and now, you know, you've survived what you've survived. And I think that what you can give back now, knowing what they've gone through and, and that 
whatever that connection is. I'm curious, Megan, when you went through all that, you get sentenced. I can't remember how long you were sentenced for, but was was it 18 months? Um, so when all was said and done and I went to my sentencing, like after signing the plea, it was dropped down to like distribution, like 50 grams of methamphetamine, something like that. Yeah. A class B felony. Um, you know, probation, so you do your PSI pre-sentencing interview and they were recommending 33 months. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went into my sentencing, you know, it was a very emotional day, right? Absolutely. Um, I've got a courtroom full of like people in the program, people that love me, that support me. I've got my mom there. Like the goal behind that was to have a ton of support in the courtroom. So when I got sent away, my mom had somebody in all, like all corners. Right. right? It wasn't about me. Like that's the thing that I finally took away from the whole situation. Like it wasn't about me. Like look at what you did. Yeah. And so I, you know, the prosecution says their piece. My attorney says her piece and she's crying, right? Like very, everyone is highly emotional. Sure. And then I say my piece and, you know, I cried a little bit, but I was just, I was ready. I was ready for what was to come. And the judge says what she needs to say. And she sentences me to 30 months in prison in um, federal prison. So I knew like, I knew that was going to happen. I knew I was going to prison. I had come to terms with that. I had some time to process. Hear my mom screaming in the courtroom mm. hysterically. You know, I mean, she knows it's coming, but like, the imagine hearing, yeah. right? Imagine hearing your daughter is getting sentenced to prison. Yeah. Like, so, you know, the marshal, he's like, I'm not going to shackle you out here. Like, let's go back here and then I'll shackle you. And I was like, Great, thank you. You know, they were very, very respectful. And he, like, the marshal, I'll never forget it. He was like, I need you to look at me. Okay. <laughs> And he said, I have never seen anybody get that little time for what you did mm. ever. And then like during, you know, during the time when the judge was talking and handing out my sentence, she's like, Mr. Acer, I will be, I will be following your case and seeing what you do. Right. You know, and at that point I had completely surrendered myself to my higher power um, and to any notion that I had control over this situation. It was like, Megan, I need you to jump. Okay. How high Mm -hmm. I'm done fighting. And just the miracles started to come in and they started happening, you know, like 30 months on 89 pounds of meth. Like, yes, there was a lot of mitigating factors, right? Um, I was a courier basically, so they're not my drugs. Right. Um, but then there's the fact that I had my kids with me, right? Right. You know, so there was, there was things working against me and things working for me. And I just like literally gave it all up and took all the suggestions and, you know, did what I needed to do during the short period that I was out to make a difference. So I ended up serving about 13 or 14 months around there of my sentence on a 30 month sentence. Um, what did I, you, I got to prison. I was going to yeah. ask you, Megan, what with, when you get, you know, from that point to the next point, did you get, have an opportunity to talk to your kids or to at least your daughter who was older about <laughs> where you were going or what, what you were doing or how that was right. What was the next step? So, 
Yeah, the my day of sentencing, right? Because I knew I was going to prison that day. So I had some conversations leading up. Like my son is just very unaware and doesn't understand. But I have like what kind of conversation I can have with him. Like mommy's going to be going away for a little bit. He doesn't really understand. I'm having these conversations with my daughter and she sees that I'm crying. So like, wait, what? And she knows it's correlating to like the event that happened. And, you know, the day that I dropped them off to school, um, the emotional part. Um, I just, I remember dropping my daughter off and, you know, I was, like she knew I was going to go away. And um, she just looks at me and she starts crying and I get out of the car and I give her a big hug. And, you know, she's just like watching the car like drive away as, as I'm leaving. And, and then, you know, years later, she tells me like, mom, remember the day that you dropped me off and you had to go away? And I was like, yeah, babe. And she's like, well, all I could do was like cry that day, you know? And, um, nobody, I couldn't tell anybody why I was so upset and sad. So like, you know, and I did, like, I did that to her. That was me. And so, and I dropped my son off. And I just, like, remember him going to his daycare and, like, smiling back at me, you know? Like, I just, yeah. I had really special moments from that day. Yeah. It was really tough. I mean, oh, it's just nothing tougher. I mean, I, I my kids were older. And uh, there's there's nothing like it. There's there's you can't. I mean, you just explained it probably as well as you can explain it. But there's nothing like it. And uh, you just you all you can do is step through it. You know that's, right. And it sounds like there there was a time somewhere in that period of time where you've gone through this and you went from kind of the victimhood thing to the survivor. I'm, I'm going to survive this, whatever this is, whatever this has to be, I'm going to step through it. And whenever that happens, I think, you know, I think whenever you hit that rock bottom, uh, you go one or two ways. You, you go yeah. into a fetal position and never come back or you something comes in you to, you feel it, like it gives you strength, even though whatever's ahead of you scares the shit out of you you're going to somehow make it. And it feels like with yeah. your story, you somehow transformed in that world that you were getting ready because you weren't going anywhere good, but your, your no. mindset, <laughs> your mindset was changing. You know, that was right. So, I mean, it was a lot like, it was a lot of um, like diving into working my steps you know I, I work a program of AA and um, I found and this is for my, the job I'm in now right and this yeah. is the, the motivating factor I drive home every time I talk to a patient loved one family whatever is you can have all the clinical the medical components you can be the best of the best like have the greatest amenities I said but if that place does not have a, a, a foundation of connection for you yeah you'll you're gonna you're not gonna make it right. like our Don't biggest stick. enemy is isolation no the combat to addiction is connection and i believe that wholeheartedly 100 percent. so when i got into the program i saw that people were happy they were sober and i wanted that again mm -hmm. i i just wanted to figure out like how do i genuinely get this connection and maintain my sobriety and live in recovery and i 
a big thing too was just seeing the damage that I had caused. You know, there were key conversations that happened during the my early sobriety where it shed light on all of the harm that I was doing to self and to others. Yeah. Well, you know? I'm interested, Megan, like when you finally made it to the prison, the federal prison, um, what was it like walking in and knowing that that's going to be your world for a while? <laughs> that was interesting. So, I mean, luckily, like, luckily the prison I went to is a, a minimum security prison. Um, I only got 30, 30 months in prison, right? So I qualified right away to get into RDAP, the residential drug program um, with the feds. And, you know, luckily there was space for me to go to a facility that was in Arizona, literally like 15 minutes from where I grew up. That's great. Okay. Right in, right, right in my backyard, kind of. Literally. And so uh, just like transport day was just a hectic, weird day. It was like, I don't know, like they had us, you know, prepare the night before at midnight. We left at like five or six in the morning. And of course you get boxed and shackled and just like shackling day or whatever you want to call it, you know, just all day, all you hear is chains Mm -hmm. and chains and chains. And then it finally gets to be your turn and you get excited, right? You get excited to get shackled up because you're like, cool, we're about to leave. (laughs) Strip me down, search me, let's go. Let's get this started. And, you know, we get, yeah, we get transported to Phoenix Sky Harbor at like a secluded area where there's just, there's just so many people with shotguns all around. There's buses everywhere. And it's just this whole event. You know, you'd think that we were like all serial killers or something. Mm-hmm. They treat everybody exactly the, the production. same. Everybody's exactly right. the same. They do. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It does not matter. So, and you don't know where you're going. Like they don't, it's not like they're like, Oh, okay. They like, make sure that you don't know you. anything. They make sure that that's no one idea. of the things you learn about losing your freedom is they make, they made, they, that's the first thing they make sure is, you know, nothing, mm-hmm. you know, nothing. Yeah. If you don't know the day you leave, no. you don't know when you're leaving, like nothing. And so like, technically, I mean, I could have gone anywhere in the country. It's a, kind of a crapshoot, right? It was, and in my head, it was between like Victorville and then the camp here in Arizona. Um, so when I got on like this tiny van, I was like, ooh, this is, might be a good sign. Like I'm not on a big bus and I'm not in an airplane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we drove and like I said, it was this is the, the camp that's super close to where I, like, I grew up. So the prison I went to like in college, you know, we learned like one of my classes was corrections, right? And we learned the difference between state and fed. And one of our assignments was to go to the federal prison, which is the federal prison I ended up being an inmate at. So how ironic is that? Yeah. So you I, walked around <laughs> that prison before you ever went in it for to be real in it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, finally we get to prison and it's just, it's kind of funny. So like the whole setup, right. It's, there's no fence, you know, you're not locked behind any kind of bar, right. It's an open campus flow, like inmates drive other inmates to the doctor. They drive them to the the airport, wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, and the inmates and run everything anyway. That's one of the things everything. I think nobody understands everything. about prison. The only thing the prison guards do is they count and then they count. Right. They literally but, walk around. <laughs> but everything else, twice. but everything else is actually done by prisoners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's like oversight for different like fields or, you yeah. know, like they're, yeah. But the, the inmates run everything pretty yeah, much there. Right. Um, yeah, so we get processed in, and I just, I remember looking at, like, the, the first thing I remember is looking at the decor, right? It was, like, very 90s, like, desert decor, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, where am I? And, you know, you do, like, your walk of shame with your bag, and, like, everybody's looking There's at you, and people. you find your bunk. Yep. Yeah. But, like, as soon as I got to, so as soon as I got to prison, like, I think two days into it, maybe. You know, um, getting into RDAP, it depended on the length of, like, length of stay that you were there, mm-hmm. right? So if I had, if I came in and I had less time on my sentence than somebody else, they, they get booted out, I get to go into RDAP, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. So, like, by day two, I've got, a, you know, a green wristband showing that I'm, I'm about to start RDAP. Which is huge because and that's that means- the only program in the federal system that'll give you a year off. and. That's a right. big deal. It is. There's a lot so of people I that walked all friends. over that too. You know, there's a lot of people <laughs> that get in that and walk out and get in trouble and get pushed back or they get kicked out. And it's, mm-hmm. it's uh it's an incredible thing to see somebody lose a year of their life because they couldn't right. stay in the program. Well, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm in a prison with, with women and, you know, women have a different concept of, uh, I don't know, manipulation than men or a different idea of what prison looks like. So it's more of like behind the scenes, passive aggressive, like I'm going to get you kicked out and you're going to lose your time. Mm -hmm. And that was always a looming threat above my head. I know that. And especially since like two days in, you know, there's women that are there for a year waiting to get into that program. And I'm like two days in and I got, I got in Yeah, and I get moved to the front of the line unit. Yeah. Right. And that's just, I mean, that's how it goes. Like if. How did it work for you in there? Was it, um, how did your, (laughs) do you have people, you know, I was always surprised that there were people immediately that helped me and I didn't see that, you know, I, your, your mind always makes it out so much worse than it really is. And even prison. And I was always, I think the most surprised when I walked in that, immediately I had a couple of people that were trying to help me get transitioned in and I didn't, I didn't know them. I was, it yeah. was, how was it for you? Um, I mean, it wasn't like as inviting. Um, cause I did have that target on my back of like, I just got into prison and I had like this target on my back, right? I had just gotten into prison and I'm going to this drug program. So like, I'm not making friends right away. Um, I kind of have this like resting bitch face, I guess, for lack of a better term. And, you know, I, I didn't make a ton of friends right away. It was very challenging for me when I first got in. Um, so I moved over to the RDAP building right away and, Yes, I did gain like really good friendships along the way. And like the, the way that prison was ran was more of like a family unit, you know? So you've got like a mom, 
sisters, brothers, whatever. Yeah. And um, I mean, race really wasn't, really wasn't, we weren't ran by race. You know, a lot of like different races like stuck together, but there wasn't an issue with like mingling, right. you know, yeah. wasn't an issue at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I found a really, really good friend while I was in there and that person I stuck with the entire time, you know, my, my, my outlook on it was I'm not in here to make all these like lifelong friends. Like we're in here for a specific reason. I have to do this RDAP program. I'm only going to open up to a certain point. Um, I wasn't even willing to open up to myself mm-hmm. on the degree of like what I had done let alone like 70 women in this program. Right. Mm -hmm. I just, I fought it. Like I fought the entire time I was there and I ended up doing a year in RDAP um, because once I graduated the program, I still had time on my sentence. Like that's how soon I got in. Um, So, you know, I had the remaining three months to stay in the building and like continue working on like, the aftercare component of the program and but you're still monitored right like you still are held to the same standards of like you follow prison rules to a t and you follow rdap rules to a t and if you don't we're still going to take your time away even though you graduated yeah like there was always that fear of like am i going to get kicked out of the program you know and there were definitely times where you get pulled in uh you get pulled up right and um there's just a, an interesting year of my life. Like I learned a lot about myself, right? I learned how to give constructive feedback and communicate assertively yes. um, while in prison, yes. right? And I used, I, I learned how to use that as a tool, like a weapon, yep. right? Rational um, thinking. The rational thinking, you know, we got into cognitive behavioral therapy, right? You change the way you think, you change the way you feel, you change the outcome for everything. And like, you know, we had, it was just a repetition, repetition, repetition every day, right? You're waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go set up for RDAP that Monday through Friday. You're making sure you're maintaining a job. You're, you know, like they give you some pretty legit um, work to do, right? Yeah. And you have to open up. If you don't open up, you get kicked out. Right. Yeah. And they I, have an entire file on you. They know you. How did you handle hard days in prison? I isolated. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had, you know, I had my music, right? I had an iPod or whatever. MP3 player. Um, MP3 player. Mm-hmm. And I downloaded music and that was my outlet. Your releaser. I read a lot of books. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I read a lot of books, played a lot of Pinochle. Yep. Uh, spades, like Pinochle was the thing, you know, I just, I try to keep myself distracted and I try to keep myself away from a lot of the women there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a lot of room to get caught up in things that I just wasn't willing to do. Like I came in there and I, I knew my focus was to get better, to like build myself up, right. Figure out why I'm, I'm doing the things I'm doing. Like when we, we, we had a group, my first like transition or my first three months. Right. And mm-hmm. we sat down and the group was on manipulation. And I just sat there and I was like, Oh, well I'm not a manipulator. And you know, I'm literally the biggest manipulator I know. And I'm in a group in prison telling myself why. <laughs> and that moment sticks out with me because the more I processed it, the more people told me, Megan, you are a manipulator. <laughs> like that was the, that was what we were to do. We were to give feedback. Yeah, constructive criticism. Feedback. Our, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, when it, when yeah, you got closer, when you got closer to this is you're going to get out. Um, what did that feel like? What were you nervous about getting out into the? You know, this is Megan now getting out, being a different version of yourself, but still being yourself. Um, were you ready? Were you? It was go time. Yeah, I mean, my whole, I guess, like towards the end, right? Because when you go into prison, you can't live in the outside world, right? It just it can't happen. I mean, it couldn't happen for me, right? Like I had to completely detach, and like, yes, I got visitation, and I saw my kids while I was in prison, and my family came, and friends, and all that. It was like you're just not present when they're there. So, um, yeah, I completely detached. So you get closer to that time, and it's like, okay, I'm having to detach from the world I created in prison, yeah, and start to reattach to the world on the outside, the real world, and what that's going to look like. This is a very weird spot to be in, especially like that last week. Like, almost like, is this real? Am I really getting out? Like, I, I completed my program, so I'm getting like extra time off my sentence. Yeah, maybe they're going to pull it for something. Like, there's always just this fear that like this other shoe is about to drop, and sure. I, well, I'm not going to get out until you but walk out today, of there. I think that's one of the oh, things yeah. you're looking behind, no. and, and you want to jump in that car as fast as you can because you're so, right. Did we sign the paperwork? Are we out of here? Yes. Right. Am I out yet? Yes. Like, and even then, though, you get out and you go to the halfway house. Mm -hmm. You're still an inmate. Absolutely. Like I was, I was an inmate for seven months after getting out of prison. Yeah. I just was able to not be in prison, but like yeah. halfway house and then home confinement. You know. Yeah. So that, like, that's a whole different world. <laughs> well, I mean, and the, you know? I'm sure reattaching yourself with your kids and all mm -hmm. that coming back in was a lot. And then you've got the thing too, Megan, where you've, you've been able to step into some really good things for yourself as you've gotten out. Um, and I always think it's really, really cool. And I, I've, so lucky to be able to talk to people on this show that when they they've gone through so much and they're, they grab on to all those things, those experiences, and you're using those things to help others. Can you explain a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, so uh, luckily when I got out of prison, right. Um, I knew that I wanted to be in treatment. Um, and this is something that was always calling me as a passion and, you know, I figured I'm a felon now and the treatment world loves felons. Sure. So this is like the perfect job for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, when I was court mandated to, to do treatment, like therapy and be a psych doctor when I got out. So um, I didn't really have many opportunities to see things in a different way. I, there was just a cosmic change that happened and, and my shift, like I had to be called out, right? Like RDAP was imperative to my, to my foundation, right? I had to be called out that I was not a victim, that I chose to put my victim blend, like glasses on every day and see the world that way. Mm -hmm. So that got removed, right? I got called out on being manipulative. And when people started pointing out times I was manipulating, and omitting and things like that and that I had a really passive aggressive way of communicating with the world and that it no longer served me and replaced those things mm -hmm. like the assertive communication and instead of manipulation I look at it as like um, redirection yeah well manipulation like using, is not a bad using, thing if you can persuade no. people into good things 
frame. Yeah. So like I took every defect that was pointed out to me and like having people call me out, right? I call myself out for everything now. Yeah. Like if I mess up, I'm like, hey, I messed up. I'm just gonna let you know. Yeah. Right. And I don't repeat that behavior. Like I just don't have time to go back down that road of self-sabotage and destruction. So I started to see that when I was getting better, there was a light about me, right? There was something there, mm -hmm. something that I could never grasp onto, something that this is the reason why I felt so different in the beginning and so sad. Like I never had anybody show me what my light was. And it took a group of women in prison to do that. Mm. You know, they, it wasn't like the drug treatment team was building me up. Like they were breaking me down. Right and telling me all these like things I really didn't want to hear about myself that were beneficial. And then it took really special ladies in prison to show me my worth. That's wow. where I found it. That's so cool. That's really mm -hmm. cool. And your kids, and, I see, I see your kids in the background there on the, on the wall. Yeah. Is, is that all? I mean, I guess, and I see the pictures and things on Facebook. I mean, you've, you've really re-entered the world as, as that mm -hmm. mom that, um, you know, they so wanted and there you are. I, th I, yeah. I think that's just fantastic. And, you know, to be able to make that all work again after all mm -hmm. that you've been through, you know, one of the things I was thinking, Megan, of all these things that you've experienced, what do you think would be to the listeners out there, your biggest takeaway through all this, how you survived and, mm -hmm how it worked for you? Oh, I guess like one. Okay. So one of the biggest takeaways, right. I did, um, I did like a spiritual healing session, mm -hmm. um, this weekend. Right. And then I went skydiving after that. There like, you go. Some cool stuff. Go spiritual right. healing and, and then cool skydiving. Things are happening. <laughs> <laughs> but so during my, you know, during my spiritual healing, um, she, she let me know. She looked at me and she just, she looks at me and she said, prison saved your life. Mm. You need to appreciate it. You know, prison I mean it saved me I was I don't think I would be here if I wasn't arrested right so embracing that embracing everything that I've been through as a lesson that I needed to learn in this lifetime mm -hmm. right I look at it like that I don't look at it as this things are happening to me I look at it as like things are happening for me and around me um, I have no control over people places things situations just have control over how I choose to react, respond, or not, you know, not do anything at all. Yeah. Process what's being told to me. I take in feedback now and I listen to it, you know, and I apply it to my life if it's applicable. And if not, like maybe, uh, maybe it will be later. I just like have a heart of humility today. Mm, humility um, is a big deal. Humility. So humility was one of another found like the, one of those key foundations where, if I didn't go to prison, I wouldn't be a humbled human. I would still live in this delusion that things work the way I need them to work versus like, I'm just a part of the world. I'm a moving piece. And I have, I know I have this light about me and in order for me to let that light shine so it can help others. Like I have to be willing to be teachable and take suggestions and, and continue to remain humbled on a daily basis. Yeah. And if I ever forget, <laughs> go back to what happened in the situation I put myself in and looking at my kids every day, yeah. 
you know, I, I was blessed enough to have an opportunity to be their mom, like their parent. Absolutely. And I, I, I ran with it, right? Like everything <clears throat> I was doing was based on my career, mm-hmm. my recovery and my children. And no matter how hard it got or, you know, what the situation looked like, like those, those were my key focuses, you know, like love self, help others, you know, believe in my higher power, give it up to that. And then like focus on these other areas where I, I can't veer away, yeah. you know, I love that. <laughs> I love that, Megan. Everything I, and one of the things I thought, you know, when it's on your Facebook, um, I think it's on, on LinkedIn too, but where you, you drove back to the prison mm-hmm. and it's just so, yeah. it's so just <laughs> kind of grabs you to your soul. Cause you can feel your emotions of where you were, how far you've come and that, you know, those emotions just came to the surface that you're, you're on the other side of this and you're doing good things and things. It's not easy, but that you're willing mm-hmm. to deal with them and, and it, it just, you know, it looks and feels good to see all that. And you, you should be commended for, I'm proud of you. I don't even know you that well, Megan, but what you've done and how you've experienced what you've done and how you're using it is really, really a big deal. And, and I, you know, my hope is, is that people who go through experiences like you have put themselves at the table to be able to help them help people, other people who, who have, or need that struggling experience to, to helping hand to get through. And you've lived it. So you know it, you don't have to go right, you know, read this book and say, Hey, here, no, you know that. Right. And, and it's real. It's authentic. Yeah. It's authentic. Megan, thanks so much for being here Thank and you. sharing your story. <laughs> it's just uh, such a cool story. So glad you made it. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Well, I appreciate you being here for any of those out there. Uh, we were looking for a book to read. We were talking about reading books. Uh, I wrote one, Nightmare Success. Um, as everybody knows, I love the likes uh, on social media comments. Uh, if you if you got time, leave a review on Apple. Uh, you can go up to the little three dots up there, and you can share the the show. Uh, you can also subscribe and on uh, Spotify. There's a little bell to hit. You want to leave me a message on BrentCassie.com or find out what Brent Cassie is doing. It's, there's a lot of stuff on there. Uh, as I used to say when I was uh, typing my uh, emails back on True Links, stay strong and I'll do the same. Megan Racer, thank you for being here today. Nightmare success, so in and out. Thanks for being here. <laughs>